Thanks for listening today to In 16 Years. I'm Amy, and this is a podcast where I talk about what I've learned in 16 years of living with endo, severe IBS, fibromyalgia, and interstitial cystitis. My name is Brittany, and I live with celiac disease, anxiety, and my own hormonal fun. We hope this show will inspire you, empower you, and help you feel supported on your own health journey. Brittany and I are not doctors, dietitians, mental health professionals, experts on endometriosis, or any kind of qualified medical professional. So that means that none of the information we share on this podcast is medical or mental health advice. If you get inspired by something we say, always consult your qualified medical professional first before making any changes. Today we speak with Olivia Nwankudu from Nigeria who is an endometriosis advocate and founder of Endo Survivors International Foundation, which is a nonprofit organization focused on raising awareness about endometriosis, educating the public about endometriosis, and supporting endometriosis patients in her country of Nigeria. Endo Survivors is an organization that is committed to reducing period poverty and improving school retention through the free distribution of sanitary pads to school children and menstruators. Since its beginning, Endo Survivors has educated over 9,000 adolescents on menstrual hygiene and the symptoms of endometriosis. This encourages discussions about periods and promotes a care-seeking behavior among those who are experiencing endometriosis symptoms in a bid to reduce diagnostic delays. In this episode, Olivia and I talked about the work that Endo Survivors is doing in Nigeria as well as the standard of care that she's come across there. So this episode is really a part of a short series that we are doing on endometriosis care and experiences globally. You know, the problems with care, with misinformation, with lack of access to excision. These are problems that the endometriosis community faces worldwide. These are global problems. And we want to highlight the voices of a few advocates worldwide who are doing great work and who can speak on obstacles to care that they've come across and also report on obstacles to care that members of their respective regional support groups have experienced. Please keep in mind, however, that while our guests share their experiences and opinions, they don't speak for or represent all of the people in their country or region. Just like when I speak about the care I've experienced in the United States, I'm not speaking for every person's experience in the United States either. Many of our experiences are similar, but they're also each unique and individual to all of us, and they vary widely. All of the opinions expressed by the interviewees on this podcast are their own. I also want to give a content warning that in this episode, there is use of gendered language at times in regards to endometriosis or menstruation. However, we want to acknowledge that endometriosis, as well as menstruation, can be experienced by people of all any gender identity, and not just women. Endometriosis affects people of all genders and sexes, including cis women, non-binary people, trans people, gender non-conforming people, intersex people, and cis men. Hi, Olivia. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. We are so happy to have you here. Would you go ahead and introduce yourself? My name is Olivia Wakudu. I'm from Nigeria. And I founded an organization which is focused on raising awareness about endometriosis and advocating for better care. 
for Nigeria and by extension, Africa. So will you tell us a little more about why you began your advocacy? The name of the organization is Endo Survivors International Foundation. So the reason I founded it was just to raise awareness about endometriosis and to challenge what's currently available. So endometriosis is a disease that very few people know about, even here in Nigeria, even though there's a lot more awareness about it now. But it has always been a case of suffering for so many years, having all the symptoms and not those symptoms not being recognized. You know, sometimes even having needless surgeries, needless appendectomies and just living through pain. And typically what happens is um, when the woman gets married and she's trying to have a child, that's when she gets diagnosed with endometriosis because you then have to start doing all the tests. You then have to then see a gynecologist. And at this point, she's probably in her late 20s, her early 30s, mid 30s, sometimes late 30s. And that's when you get to hear that you have this disease, this incurable, terrible disease. And then most times when the patient looks back, she sees that she had had all these symptoms since she was in high school. Um, We call this secondary school here. She's been in secondary school having this debilitating pains, menstrual cramps that keep her incapacitated and all of that. So if she had known these symptoms or if her parents or her teachers had known these symptoms earlier on, she would have probably seen a gynecologist much earlier. So the organization is kind of challenging the lack of awareness, the lack of education, the delay in diagnosis with endometriosis. And we're we're trying to see how women can get access to better care for the disease. That's wonderful. Thank you so much for your advocacy. I follow your page and, you know, you're doing a great job trying to bring awareness to endometriosis. I think that's really important. To start with our questions, I'd love to ask you, what have you found that typical endometriosis treatment looks like in your country? And of course, this would be generally. So what you've experienced or, you know, in running your organization and speaking to other people with endometriosis and hearing about their experiences. So how would you describe just like a typical endometriosis treatment and care in your country? So typically, (laughs) endometriosis care is hormonal treatment, hormonal treatment, hormones and more hormones. And then surgery, which is usually ablation. That's the, the basic thing people get for care. So first of all, misinformation is also part of it because if you're not seeing a doctor who even knows the symptoms of endometriosis, I'm talking about a GP now. Typically, you have to go to a primary health center before you get referred to see a gynecologist in Nigeria. But there are hospitals that you can just walk into and then you can see the gynecologist, right? But normally, what usually happens is you go and see a general, you know, practitioner doctor, and then that one will then refer you to see a gynecologist. So we find that among the general practitioners, they tend to think that endometriosis is something far-fetched or it's not a disease that is so prevalent among Nigerian women. But many of them are beginning to know now through the training programs we've been having and the programs and advocacy events that we're having now, they are getting to know that endometriosis doesn't just affect Nigerian women. It's very common. From that 
initial, I mean, the first doctor a girl sees when she starts seeing her period and she has cramps, that first doctor has a lot to do with how things are going to turn out for that woman. Because if the doctor tells you, oh, um, it's normal to have menstrual cramps, it's okay, there's nothing wrong with it. When you get pregnant, it will stop. Or I have even heard a nurse say, when you become sexually active, it will stop. But that misinformation is, is something that, that is part of what we experience in the healthcare. So let's say you finish with that and you get referred. Let's say you see a doctor who kind of suspects endometriosis and then you get referred to see a gynecologist. Most of what we have is hormonal treatment, contraceptives, Zoladex, the GNRH agonists and all of those kind of drugs. Then when the woman is not really responding or if the disease is just not getting, because some of them believe that when you take the hormones, the disease will go away. For some others, they know that when you take the hormone, after a while, it's going to come back when you stop. So those ones can advise you to probably have a surgery. Now, when you do have a surgery, if you do have a surgery, the endometriosis most of the time comes back. Because in our support group, I've worked with women from all walks of life, from different experiences with endometriosis, and the stories are the same. You take these hormonal tablets and then you do the surgery. And after a year, sometimes after nine months, sometimes after a year and six months, the symptoms come back in full force. So then another thing we have as part of the healthcare is maybe IVF for women who are trying to have children. So sometimes the doctors would advise, um, depending on the age of the woman, if the surgery is going to be high risk or if it's going to mess up with your ovarian reserve, especially for those that have ovarian endometriomas, they'll just advise you to do IVF. So some have gone ahead to do IVF. Some of them were successful and they have children now, but we're still observing to see if the symptoms are going to come back or if the symptoms are gone forever. Or some of them have had children and the symptoms have come back. So these are the major um, areas where you, those are the major treatment options. You have your hormones, you have surgery, of course, we have some specialists that will tell you to take maybe some juice or some vegetables or something and the disease will go away. People have tried some of those things and the story is always the same. Those um, alternative medicines might help, like maybe helping your period to be regular for people who say their periods have not come or things like that. But for the endometriosis itself, those things haven't been helpful. You know, so th those are just some of the aspects where we alternatives or the options that endometriosis patients have opted for. Yeah, thank you for giving an overview of what you've found and what people that and people in your support group, what you've all been experiencing with endometriosis. I've been finding that in these interviews, you know, across different countries that it's really just the same story among patients is, you know, go to the doctor. If, if the doctor can recognize the symptoms of endometriosis, then it's just hormones, hormones, different kinds of hormones. And potentially if the person can access surgery, ablation surgery. So I know you just gave an overview of endometriosis care, but I'd love to know, have you found doctors to be knowledgeable 
in endometriosis in terms of the information that they're giving? So we do have some knowledgeable doctors and we do have some that are not so knowledgeable. And even nurses, we have nurses that are knowledgeable about endometriosis as well, but we have those that are not so knowledgeable. But generally, the awareness, the education, and the care for endometriosis is not good. It's not good enough. For us in Nigeria, I, I observe that there are really different presentations of endometriosis here. I mean, we, we do have a lot of cases of umbilical endometriosis. We do have a lot of cases of thoracic endometriosis. We do have um, a lot of cases of pelvic endometriosis, severe deep infiltrating endometriosis where the uterus and everything just adhered together. And I, I don't know, I may be wrong, but I feel like that has a lot to do with the negligence from the beginning when people are not able to access the care that they should have at the right time. So most times when you're getting care for endometriosis in your mid thirties, early thirties, it's usually severe. So at that point, even the ones we believe to be experts will tell you to just hold on or they sometimes would even recommend a hysterectomy or they would just advise you to be on the hormones or something because we know that most of us in Nigeria, in Africa, we want to have children. Hysterectomy is not a decision you take lightly and you need, if you're married, you definitely need your husband to buy into that idea. It's not something you just do lightly. So we find a lot of patients living with severe endometriosis, with pain and having no options because even the few, the handful of specialists we have, they will tell you that they really cannot do much for you and they will just recommend, if you're married, they'll just advise you to try to get pregnant before you then do the hysterectomy. So we, we do have some specialists, but it's not adequate at all. It's not adequate, it's not good enough for the population that needs the care. So what do you think about the access to excision in Nigeria? Is excision surgery available? Is it common? And what kind of obstacles are in the way to accessing excision surgery? Is it available? Yes. Is it common? No. And the challenge is most times is, it, it's first of all, even finding the doctors. So the doctors we know that are excision specialists that I know and that my organization has worked with, there are just about three of them and they are in Lagos. Lagos is like the commercial nerve center in Nigeria. So we find that patients in different parts of Nigeria have to travel. Even patients in um, surrounding African countries like Cameroon, Benin, they've had to come to Nigeria to see some of these specialists and they are not cheap at all. <laughs> they are not cheap, they are very expensive. So it's not um, readily accessible to the regular woman. Remember that endometriosis is a disease that kind of messes up a woman's life in her prime. So we have a lot of patients who are unable to work or earn an income. And even if you were earning an income, paying these doctors is not even cheap. So how much more when you don't have a job? So in that regard, I'll say it's not really accessible. 
But as for whether they are there, yes, they are there. There are few of them. But the truth is, if you can pay for it, definitely you you get the treatment. But the patients, some of them, a lot of them are unable to afford it. A lot of them are unable to even travel because they they sometimes have these um reservations about going so far for care because somehow you you're already seeing a doctor where you are you're probably consulting with a gynecologist in your own state and that one is telling you oh i'll be able to do this i'll be able to remove the this i'll be able to remove the endometriosis but because they are enlightened and then because they are aware of the work my organization does and then they ask questions from other ladies and the women tell them ask your doctor is it going to do excision or ablation so when they find out from those their doctors in their localities the doctors will tell them oh we're just going to burn off the endometriosis and when they say they are going to burn it off you know that's not excision you know it's not excision surgery but sometimes because that's what the ladies have access to that's what they can pay for that's what they can have so they just opt for those surgeries and then after a while the symptoms come back they are in so much pain and it's a really difficult thing to live with so we do have excision we have a few specialists with endometriosis but it's so inadequate it's not enough it would have been better if uh, government or publicly funded um, hospitals had those excision specialists there the excision specialists here are private so they usually collect their payment out of pocket from the patients or for the patients that have health insurance yes but some of them don't even accept you know health insurance so a lot of times patients have to pay out of pocket and that's a really it's a huge burden on them what is the insurance system like in nigeria you know is it like a publicly funded insurance system or does it depend on your employer kind of like here in the united states or do a lot of people have insurance? Yeah, so we have different types of insurance. We, we have the publicly funded one, but those ones usually would not cover certain types of diseases, especially like endometriosis. You know, they call them high risk <laughs> diseases, especially diseases that have to do with uh, reproductive health and all of that. Many of those publicly funded insurance schemes can handle maybe antenatal and deliveries. In fact, they may not even cover cesarean sections. I don't think they cover cesarean sections, but it could cover the regular checkups, uh, deliveries, you know, giving birth naturally. So that's for the, uh, the public ones. Then the other ones, the private ones would depend on your employer. So some employers have really good insurance packages. We call them HMOs. Here. Um, HMOs are organizations that they kind of they, they work with the employer. The employer would normally pay, I think, will pay to those HMOs, and there's the plan around it through which the HMOs will then pay for your um, hospital bills because the employer is making some remittances to the HMOs. So, depending on the company, some companies have better packages than some other companies. And even within the company, depending on your rank or your position, you know, there are different packages, if you get what I mean. So there are like, you can be working in um, a big, very big company, but your insurance premium might not be the same as 
a general manager in the same company. So there are different bands, they call them bands, which um, every patient has. But generally when you're working in a very good place, like a really good organization, they take care of your healthcare to a very reasonable extent. I know people whose companies have actually paid for their surgeries. I know someone whose company paid for her IVF. That is not common at all. Usually insurance companies do not pay for IVF. HMOs do not pay for IVF because they think it's, it's too risky and it's very expensive. So what if the woman doesn't get pregnant, you know, and all of that. So it's not a very common thing, but still there are some really good organizations that pay for surgery. They pay for IVF. They, you know, give you leave, paid leaves and compared to some others. Yeah, what you're explaining about the possibility of having the insurance through the employer does sound kind of similar, I think, here in the United States where we can have insurance through our employer, but the plans vary so widely. And if you have a great job and, you know, a great employer, you can have all of these great benefits. And if you don't have a great job, you know, and not so great employer, then the benefits are just the minimum, the bare, the bare minimum, you know, really high deductibles, high co-pays, very high out-of-pocket maximum versus like, I just think of a, my sister who works in IT. So she has like a really high paying job in a really nice company and her insurance package is so nice. And, you know, my insurance package, I think is more like a, like a medium, like an average package is not the worst package. Is definitely not the best insurance package. Uh, it gets the job done, but yeah, they they vary so so widely. And you know, I just think that's really unfortunate. Like I understand that like private insurance came about through the workplace. I don't know, like 50, 70 years ago is like benefits. Like it's a it's kind of like in addition to your salary, you have these benefits, and you have this paid leave, and you. Um, might have parental leave and you might have, you know, PTO and sick days and in the insurance, but it's just another example of how inequitable care is across the world because it's like, maybe I can't get this super great job because what I studied doesn't qualify me to get this great job, or maybe I didn't study at university at all. So it's, it's very frustrating to, to hear that as other interviewees have explained too, that, you know, your benefits can be linked to your job and that that can really put obstacles in the way of getting great care. Not only is your benefit package not very good, but perhaps you're in a job that doesn't pay very much. So it's not like you're getting a bunch of money from your job and you can make up for the lack of benefits that you're receiving. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you got that right. You got it spot on. That's just what it is. It's inequitable. It's inequitable, but... Now, I know that your organization, Endo Survivors, is doing a lot of work to try to educate the general population about endometriosis. I know you're putting up quizzes about endometriosis misinformation, endometriosis myths, and I know you're educating about excision surgery. Would you say that the general population of patients with endometriosis, that they are aware that excision surgery exists? Or do you come across a lot of people who are not aware of excision surgery? Yeah, so we still come across a lot of people who do not know what excision surgery is. We keep adding new members to the support group. Some patients do not even know anything about endometriosis, much less about excision surgery. And it's understandable. 
So we get to educate them, get to educate them about the options, not just uh, about excision surgery, but sometimes it helps to educate patients about um, lifestyle adjustments as well that may be beneficial to them because endometriosis doesn't affect everyone the exact same way. You know, some patients don't even have severe symptoms. Some of them have menstrual cramps and that's all. While some others have chronic pain, 24 hours pain, whereas some others have a little pain and their main concern is infertility, you know. So um, we bring all of the education to them together in a holistic way. And we try to educate them about the disease, how it affects a woman's body, how it could affect her relationships, how to manage your emotions, even in spite of it. And not just the patients, we try to educate the caregivers, like the spouses, the partners, or the parents of the patients as well, because they also play a very, very important role in how a woman lives through this terrible condition called endometriosis. So we try to educate on the tr different treatment options, the different side effects of the drugs. I, I found out something very interesting that a lot of patients do not know the side effects of the treatments that they take. So you find them asking, oh, I took this drug and this is happening. Is it normal? Or sometimes they don't even link it to a drug. They just complain, like, I haven't been sleeping. And then somebody else would ask you, okay, are you on any medication? And you find that, okay, she say, oh, I'm on Zoladex, for example. And we know that a lot of people who are on Zoladex have trouble sleeping. Insomnia is one of the side effects. So we then have to educate them that it could be this, it could be insomnia related with Zoladex because your ovaries are not producing estrogen anymore. Estrogen normally would help you with sleep and with other things. One time a lady, she called me, she was crying. She said, oh, her knee, her knee is hurting and then she couldn't move with her knee. So when she described everything that was going on, I just remembered that when I was on Zoladex, I had the same experience with my kneecap, you know, and it turned out to be, and when she stopped Zoladex, immediately, you know, some of those symptoms just went off. So we do have a lot of opportunities to actually educate patients on the disease, the treatment options, the pros and the cons, because these treatment options also have the, some of the advantages, but it's also important that patients know the side effects and doctors hardly tell patients about side effects. A lot of patients are so disappointed that at the end of a nine-month nine regimen, the symptoms are back. And we tell them that hormones do not cure endometriosis. They can make you feel better. They can help you focus to write your exams, maybe because you're not menstruating. So you're, you're not in pain. So you'll be able to focus. But when you're done for that period and you go off the treatment, the symptoms are definitely going to come back. I just really want to commend you again on your support group because I think patient education is so, so important to the patient experience. And I think it's very common, and this happens here in the United States as well, that the doctors just don't tell the patients about side effects of the medication. They don't mention it. You know, they don't bring it up. And as you said, some of these medications like GnRH drugs, they can have really serious side effects, intolerable side effects, insomnia, joint pain, short-term memory loss, hot flashes. 
And so when a patient goes on these medications and has no idea that, that these side effects potentially, you know, are going to be coming for them during the time of the treatment and, and then these side effects start, it, it can be really scary and really overwhelming. And it can also feel really disappointing and very angering that, you know, well, why wasn't I told about this? So I could at least be emotionally and mentally prepared or why wasn't I told about this? Because maybe I would have made a different decision. You know, maybe I would have chose a different type of hormone, like a birth control pill, or maybe I would not have taken any, any hormones at all. And I just would have tried to do some lifestyle adjustments. So I think what you said is so important that bringing education to the patients so that we can make our best informed decision. I think it's unfortunate that sometimes when we learn about the options that we learn about potential side effects and we weigh our goals for the treatment. Okay. So perhaps my goal is pain management, but I'm also looking to start my family in the next year. So I'm not going to go on hormones. Right. And so then where does that, where does that leave me? You know, just with my, my painkillers or trying to make some lifestyle adjustments. And I think what you said is so important that Sometimes after you hear all the options, you realize that there are no options in your situation. And that's, that's a really devastating feeling. You know, that's, that's really devastating to say, okay, I'm suffering every single day from this disease and there are no options available to me at this point in my life because of the goals that I have for disease treatment. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there are no options. (laughs) What are some of the cultural or societal norms that you've come across or heard reported from others in your country that impact the ability to receive adequate care or to be diagnosed quickly? Yeah, thank you for that one. I think one of the major ones is uh, normalizing pain. Normalizing menstrual pain. I can't even begin to tell you how many patients we're told that they should just endure when you get pregnant the pain will go just endure is normal with young girls when you grow older it'll go and they kept growing older and the pain got worse so i think normalizing pain is one of the societal norms that we are seriously challenging as an organization and we're beginning to see some change young girls are beginning to know and they're, they're beginning to be bold enough to insist when your pain is is not abating it's getting worse you should ask to see a gynecologist and if you're not getting a referral i mean in nigeria you can actually walk to so you can go and see a gynecologist it's in the government hospitals that you need a referral you know you need to see a primary health care practitioner that, that would then refer you, but for the private clinics, you can actually go and see gynecologists without being referred. So that's one. Another um, societal norm, or should I call it a cultural issue, is this um, culture of silence. So when we started the organization, it, was, it wasn't so easy getting women to speak up about the pain, which is understandable. You know, nobody wants to be shamed. You know, nobody wants to bring their pain and troubles to the public. But we had to educate them because if you don't share your story, 
other people who are going through the same thing will not have the confidence to share theirs. So it's as we began to talk about endometriosis, we began to talk about the pains associated with endometriosis. We, we began to talk about the impact this disease has on the lives of sufferers. We're talking about the impact it has on relationships, marriages, on your productivity as a young woman, on your choices, on your income. We began to talk about these things, then other women began to talk about it boldly without even feeling shame. And now we do, I can say that we have advocates, we have women, we have patient advocates who are speaking up boldly and advocating for better care. Because just by sharing your story, you are empowering another woman to speak up, right? Because I don't know who it, who it was. Was it Oprah Winfrey or someone who said, shame thrives in silence or stigma thrives in silence? So it's when people are just quiet about something, everybody's just looking away. Then when one person speaks up, the person looks like she's strange. But now we're having more women speak up about endometriosis. And the men are even advocating. The doctors are talking about it now. So it's no longer strange. It's no longer something people thought was a rare disease now they know that endometriosis is not rare because people weren't talking about it now more people are talking about it so they know that you know something has to be done so another societal norm is um this is still around the culture of silence too but you know people generally will not like to talk about menstrual issues they see it as a taboo anything that has to do with blood is a taboo but we encourage adolescent girls. I mean, you don't need to take a microphone to talk about your menstrual issues. You just talk to your mom, talk to your dad. And when we go to secondary schools, because as an organization, we've educated well over 9,000 school girls now about the symptoms of endometriosis, encouraging them to speak. So when we go to the schools, we don't just talk to the students now, we talk to the teachers as well, because the students need to understand that they have a safe space to speak. If a girl doesn't come to school and she says, oh, I couldn't come to school because I had menstrual pain, she shouldn't be mocked. You shouldn't laugh at her because usually what, what you see is somebody, in fact, you shouldn't even be saying that you couldn't come to school because you had menstrual pain. They will ask you, are you the only one menstruating? Other people are menstruating, but they came to school. So why is your case different? So we're now beginning to educate, working closely with the government, we're beginning to educate teachers, educate caregivers that there's a disease called endometriosis. It's not a regular menstrual pain. It's not the regular menstrual cramps. When a girl is not able to come to school because she's menstruating, she should be encouraged to see a specialist. You know, it's not, that's not the time to shame her or to penalize her for not coming to school. She should be encouraged. Her parents should also be encouraged. If your parents are not aware, the school authority should be able to tell the parents that Oh, oh, this girl didn't come to school last month because of this. She didn't come this month. Please take her to see a gynecologist. You know, so we're trying to dispel this um, attitude of being silent about menstrual issues or being silent about your pain because people need to speak up because really, if you don't speak up, nobody's going to know what's happening in the first place before we start telling them what we even do about it. You need to, the, the doctor even needs to know you know, the doctor needs to hear what you have to say. The doctor needs to hear your story. He needs to hear your experiences before he can then even give you good or bad advice. You know, he needs to even know what's going on with you. So 
yeah, those are some of the societal norms that I have um, encountered in my work. I didn't realize that your organization was going into schools and educating about menstrual well-being. I think that's so amazing. And that is a really big piece of the puzzle is just educating menstruators about what does healthy menstruation look like? What are some indicators when menstruating that it could be something more serious? What's normal? What's not normal? And of course, breaking the stigma and breaking the shame. It is difficult to get your period and then go to school, maybe because of, I just remember so much fear of like, I had a very heavy bleeder. So bleeding on my chair, like staining my pants, maybe you get your period and you don't have menstrual products, you know, and then of course the pain and that fear when you're at school, like I remember once I got my period in, in class and I just like fell out of my chair and was like writhing on the floor and everyone was, I don't know, laughing, but also like horrified and I was horrified. And then the nurse came and took me away in a wheelchair and I felt so much shame and so scared after that to like go to school next time with my period. And if there was just more education among all students and teachers and nurses and everyone involved. And I love that, as you said, letting the school know that this could be an indication of a disease if someone is missing school regularly because of their period and to pass that education on to parents if they're not already aware. So I just, I think that's really powerful and that's a really big piece of the puzzle. So I really want to commend your organization for taking those steps to try to educate people from a very young age about their period. So is there anything that you feel excited about that's been happening in your country or region in terms of endometriosis? Yes. So first, um, it's good to see how people are getting interested. I'm talking about the general public, doctors, nurses. They're just picking interest in joining us to raise awareness. These are people who before now would have just been quiet about it or they'll just, you know, look away. But it's becoming like a movement. So that gives me a lot of joy. In March this year, we had a walk. A walk. Okay, we called it walk and cycle for endo. It was so inspiring to see the number of people who turned out for the program, the number of companies that came out to say they were going to support and they did support. So that's very encouraging. And in the same month of March, we had a conference where here in Lagos and we had the Honorable Commissioner for Health come for that program where he, he said that we're going to work closely with the government here in Lagos State to set up a diagnostic center for endometriosis. So that's something I'm so excited about as well. And we're also um, working on uh, research on endometriosis, not clinical research now anyway. For now, we're just starting with research around the social aspects of living with the disease, the impact it has on women, the challenges and the barriers, the barriers and facilitators to healthcare. So those are some of the research papers we're working on currently with support from different organizations. And it's been so inspiring. It has never happened before to see this kind of support because before now, when you talk about endometriosis or you write letters to some of these organizations, they don't even know what it is, much less, you know, support. 
because to them it's not viable. <laughs> it's not killing anybody. <laughs> it's not an emergency. It's not terminal. But it's good to see that they are beginning to be interested. They are beginning to, you know, support. We are not yet there at all. We have still quite a long way to go, but we're thankful for these improvements and these blessings that we've experienced and hopeful for more in the future. Yeah, I actually saw on your page on Instagram pictures of the walk and, you know, I saw pictures of various persons with endometriosis and you had signs and things like period pain isn't normal and other messages while walking. I thought that was so powerful to see that and to see, and that's really good to hear that there was good turnout about the walk and that there's a lot more support. And I think that makes me feel hopeful for the future. That makes me feel hopeful for the future generations that hopefully endometriosis will become a word that is just as common as diabetes. Knowledge about endometriosis, at least that it exists, at least some of the early warning signs and indicators of the disease, hopefully that will just be very common, you know, and that will help people understand that they may have a disease and then that can start them in motion to look for care, to find an organization like yours, because when you don't know what you have, like, you know, that you're not feeling well, you know, that you're having these weird things happening with your body, but then people are normalizing it. Sometimes you're going, you're going to the doctor and some of these doctors are saying, no, that's normal. Or we don't know what's wrong with you. Or maybe it's just anxiety. All your tests are normal. And it's really hard then to like get a clue about what is happening with your body. But when you get a name for your, even a suspected diagnosis, even, okay, I just suspect I have endometriosis, then you can find support groups like yours, find organization, find information on the internet. And I think that's a really big change than when you're just lost in the dark, Googling about your painful periods and maybe nothing is coming up that setting you in the right direction. So for our last question, I would like to know, is there anything additional that you wanted to add about care in your country or in your region? We're hopeful that we will see more gynecologists that will be interested in endometriosis and not just uh, <laughs> treating endometriosis like another hormonal trouble rather tackling it as a whole body disease because endometriosis we're, we're beginning to learn that it is more than a gynecological condition i would love to see and I know I'm, I'm going to see it because my organization is working hard at it. But I know that by God's grace and with all the work and everything we're doing, the day will come where an endometriosis patient will be treated holistically, not just giving hormones or sending for surgeries, mutilating body parts, castrating, removing their uteruses, removing ovaries. Not just that, but treating endometriosis as a disease with such a huge social impact with a huge toll on mental health. So I'm hopeful that the day will come when we will have a multidisciplinary center for endometriosis. And I know that it's going to happen where Nigeria will be like 
we can have a center for endometriosis here in Nigeria where other countries from Africa, I mean, the neighboring ones here in West Africa can come to. There was a lady that reached out to me. In fact, she joined the support group. She's from Cameroon. And in the whole of Cameroon, there's no place to do an MRI, according to her. She had to come to Nigeria to do an MRI. So it's not just Nigeria. I hope that in other parts of Africa, at least we can have some, even not, maybe one or two specialists with endometriosis, excision specialists, doctors who have extensive experience with treating endometriosis. A lot of times what, what's obtainable now is when, we, when people get diagnosed with endometriosis, they just tell you, just try and get pregnant or just uh, take these contraceptive pills. They are yet to see endometriosis as a disease that actually messes up a woman's life. I always tell them that endometriosis may not be life-threatening, but it is life-altering. It changes your life. It changes your choices. You see people who are very active, but because of endometriosis, they have become so solitary, so isolated, so reserved. Now, and then they, the people look at them as, oh, she, she's antisocial, or she doesn't want to, to talk to anybody. No, she cannot even talk. She's in so much pain. And she doesn't want to make commitments. You know, when you're in relationships with people or you have friends, they say, oh, let's go out, let's go and eat. Or I have a party, let's go party. She cannot party, she's sick, she's in pain. But because endometriosis doesn't have these physical symptoms, like any other disease, you, you might just see a woman, she's looking so beautiful, her hair is all put together, her makeup is in place, but she's very sick, she's in so much pain. So doctors, nurses, the healthcare professionals, need to understand how endometriosis actually messes with people's lives and how it just takes a toll on every aspect of the woman's life, her fertility, her relationships, her marriages, her work, you know. So I, I look forward to seeing a healthcare system that caters to every aspect. If the girl needs um, hormonal treatment, fine, she can see an endocrinologist. If she needs mental health support, she can see a psychiatrist or a psychologist. If she needs surgery, she can see an excision specialist. If she wants to have children and she has tried naturally, it's not working, then she can go for assisted reproduction methods, you know. And if she needs uh, to see a physiotherapist, she can see a physiotherapist. If she needs to change her diet or she needs to make any kind of lifestyle adjustment, she can see a nutritionist or whoever is in charge. I'm looking forward to that day when endometriosis will be, will be treated as a whole body disease and not just as um, one disease that a pregnancy will solve or a hysterectomy will solve. That's unfair to the woman and it's really unfair to the society because endometriosis has a huge economic burden on our country and the world at large. Well, Olivia, thank you so much for your interview today, for talking to us about the experiences that you've come across in Nigeria and in the region of West Africa. I, again, just really want to commend the work that your organization is doing, and we will put the links to your organization and your Instagram page in the show notes so that people can follow and hopefully support your organization and the hard work that all of you are doing. 
So thank you so much. We really appreciated your time today. 